But you can go ahead and take a seat, and our kids can be dismissed for their own lesson with Sprouts. You can meet your teacher at the back door there. Miss Tanya will be escorting you down the hallway for your lesson. Well, folks, here we are with, uh, well, with, an, I guess, what has been become a common phrase, a new normal, because there's no longer a mask mandate and there's no longer ugly social distancing tape on the pews, and we got to sing with abandon this morning, and now we're ready to hear from God's Word. But I have to tell you, if there is a word that I have grown fairly tired of over the last 14 months, it is that word, normal. Normal. Because first, when this whole interesting season began, you had all sorts of people making proclamations about, of course, the new normal. And the new normal was going to be characterized by masks and social distancing and Zoom school and all that stuff. And initially, everybody sort of said, okay, well, it's the new normal, and so we're just going to have to accept it. Two weeks to stop the spread, et cetera. And then, and then it, you know, it kept on going, and eventually people weren't so satisfied with the new normal, and they were longing for the old normal. Oh, if we could just have all the old normal back, normal, normal, and in case you didn't get it, normal. We want normal, darn it. The longer our kids were on Zoom school, the more we longed for it. But as I pondered that word normal this week, I was not led so much to focus on what was normal. Because as Ecclesiastes 7.10 states it, say not why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So I don't want to focus on what was today. Instead, what I've been thinking about it was what it means to be normal Christians in the here and now, no matter what season we're living in. In other words, I want to reset our minds to thinking about how we ought to live. What is the will of God coming out of such a time as this? And that thinking led me to the passage we're going to read today from 1 Thessalonians 5, 13 through 23. Paul writes this, Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will do it. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity 
together here this morning, we pray that you would bring your word by the power of your Holy Spirit through my all too imperfect and very feeble lips to the people you've gathered here. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So in light of that passage, what does it look like? What is God's will for us as we seek to live in a new normal now? Well, first of all, it's very clear right up front. Paul says God's will is for us to be at peace with one another. Just before this verse, Paul encourages the people of the church in Thessalonica to esteem and respect and love their leaders, their elders, their pastors, to do everything, to go out of their way to show how appreciated their pastors and elders are. After this verse, he's going to really go on to describe what it looks like to love and respect each other as members of the congregation and how to be at peace together, giving various instructions. And yet as he does this, he recognizes that not everybody's going to be in the same spot. And that, that reality is true for us here today. There's going to be different needs for different people. For example, Paul begins, in order for peace to be had, some are going to need some admonishment, specifically the idol, Thessalonican church or the Thessalonian church. In the church Paul writes these words to, there was a movement of people that basically believed that, well, since Jesus is going to come back any time, there was no need to work anymore. And so they, they basically entered some sort of communal living where they didn't really have to worry about anything anymore or go to work anymore. And Paul spends a great deal of his time in this letter correcting that errant thing. He says, no, no, you're still in the world, even if you're not of the world. Jesus hasn't come back yet, so get busy. Admonish the idol. Certainly there is application in our time for this word. I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school that a lot of us found it quite comforting to binge watch Netflix and Disney Plus and HBO Max and any other streaming service we could get our hands on, or for that matter, whatever else we could do to pass the time, especially when we kind of felt like we had no other option, when, when many of us couldn't do anything else. And even, you know, online church, as thankful as we are for the ability to broadcast this everywhere, well, the reality was initially it may have started off as something that you kind of sat there very focused on, but I know how it goes. I mean, you know, especially if you have kids running around, it's very easy to get distracted, and the word that's being preached just sort of becomes background noise as you're going on with the things that need to be done in the house. And so there, there is application for, for some, and I'll just be real with you, for me, yes, the idol need to be admonished. We're entering a new season. The church has a mission still. And yet, yeah, again, Paul knows that not everybody's there. As a matter of fact, I would imagine that a lot of people sitting in here today are part of the second group that he mentions that need to be addressed in order for peace to be fostered within the body of Christ. And that is that we must encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Perhaps you're sitting here after this season of life feeling like you don't have anything left to give. 
And maybe, maybe you were idle at home for a large time during this. Everybody has sort of different situations. But nevertheless, there's sort of a mental exhaustion that sort of swept over everyone at various points and seasons throughout this time. And so to you who may be feeling faint-hearted and weak and can't handle the thought of being told to do another darn thing in your life, I want to address you with the words of Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. For those who aren't exhausted, I'd encourage you to come to those who are and ask as a brother or sister in Christ, how can I as God's ambassador come alongside of you and help lighten your load a little bit. Is there anything I can do to help? That's what Galatians 6 tells us, at least part of what it means to be a part of the church, to bear one another's burdens. Paul goes on, he says, in order to foster peace within the congregation, there's going to need to be a whole lot of forgiveness. Now it is true. There was just a poll released this last week showing that forgiveness is going out of style with the youngins. It's not popular with the younger generation. As a matter of fact, I've heard radio shows, very well-known, very widespread radio shows that have advocated for us to be less forgiving as a society and more punitive. This is sort of the root of what you hear about all the time you know, cancel culture. It's true, it's not stylish. And yet, the only way to have, and I, I want to make this clear, any community, not just the church, any community is if there is forgiveness. We can't get away from it. It's simply a fact that people will wrong you in this life and, and the church is not immune from it because the church is filled with humans and humans do wrong things. The only way to heal and maintain peace is by trying to find ways to extend grace. It doesn't mean no consequences or no boundaries. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean a conscious effort to say I'm not going to let bitterness and resentment be my Lord. I'm going to be, I'm going to submit to the Lord who's given me incredible forgiveness, be the one who guides me to forgive you. As Anne Lamott says, to not forgive is like you taking rat poison and waiting for the other person to die. It will consume you. And the only way any of these imperatives will happen is with a whole lot of patience. Yet another imperative Paul gives. We must be patient with each other and understanding of each other. That's what he says in verse 14. And yet Paul's not done exhorting us about God's will for our lives. He, he gives three very short, very famous imperatives that I'm sure you're familiar with when he says, quote, Rejoice always... 
pray without ceasing, and be thankful in all circumstances. In other words, always, always, always. Rejoice always, pray always, be thankful always. Oof. Always? Why'd you have to add that word? Couldn't it, couldn't you, isn't it good enough to say sometimes? James famously says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Oof. Be thankful in all circumstances, but what about when someone cuts me off on the road? Or if I'm being criticized? When I'm diagnosed with cancer? How on earth? Well, I think, I think one of the answers Paul gives to the question of how this could even possibly take place actually is found smack dab in the middle of the imperatives. Pray without ceasing. Now, of course, this doesn't mean don't do anything else and join a monastery and, and just spend all your days at the altar with your head bowed, eyes closed, hands folded, etc. Now, the, the spirit of this is that we would be living a life that is characterized by prayer. And the spirit of that, if I can go even further, if I want to boil down like what prayer really is, it's a constant acknowledgement that you can't do it alone. That you need Him. If you, if you think about it, there's, there's few greater signs in the world of your utter dependence on the Lord than to say, Help. Prayer is at, at its base, acknowledging what Jesus says, that apart from him we can do nothing. Growth in the Christian life does not mean independence. That's your problem. Growth in the Christian life always means greater dependence. The problems we have stem from the delusion that we can handle it ourselves. I've told you many times how often I get busy for the Lord. You know, I'm a pastor after all. And my wife will say, honey, we need to pray first before you go. And I will say, I can't. I've got too many things to do for thee, Lord. And my wife is good at rebuking me and not letting me get away with it. She's vastly more holy than I am. That's my problem. To the degree that I'm not rejoicing or or thankful, or don't have the ability to do it, I, I have this suspicion that it comes from thinking I can handle it on my own, which leads to prayerlessness. But when we come in prayer, we're reminded that we have a God who loves and cares for us, who is powerful beyond our wildest imagination. It resets our minds to recognize that, that we have an infinite resource Right at the tip of our fingers. Wouldn't it be great if we, as God's people here at Hillside, didn't give in to the tendency to complain, but to pray? Wouldn't it be great 
If we at Hillside were marked by joy rather than disgruntlement, this is God's will for us as His people. But Paul's still not done with his exhortations. God's will for us in this new normal is for us to once again commit ourselves to his word above all other words. That's essentially what he means when he says in verses 19 through 21 or 22, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, that is the word of God, but test everything. Hold fast what is good from every form of evil. The implication is clear. At that time, if someone showed up claiming to speak on God's behalf, because remember, the New Testament Scriptures weren't solidified yet, the church was to know the Scriptures they had well enough that they could test what was said against that word. So too, if we would have any hope of, of living in God's will in this new normal, we must insist on being people of His word. If we would have any hope of abstaining from evil, not quenching the Spirit, giving thanks in all circumstances, praying always, rejoicing always, being at peace with one another, the Word and the sacraments are the means by which God delivers the power. But of course, Paul isn't just talking about any word from God that we need in order to live by His will. As he says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of Christ or from the word of Christ. Specifically, the word that we need to hear over and over and over again is that word that points us to what Christ has accomplished for us. After giving the church such a long list of imperatives in this passage, Paul knows they and we will fall short. He knows we'll need to be reminded of the forgiveness won for us by Christ because the truth is, I haven't always been at peace with everyone. I haven't rejoiced always. I'm far too prone to complaining. I haven't been prayerful enough and I haven't been thankful in all circumstances. No, not even close. Though I affirm the perfection of God's Word, my mind too easily strays from what it clearly says, and I still fall short of its commands and its declarations. After all, all of the commands are summed up in loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself all the time. Or to keep it more simple, be perfect. I'm done for. And so are you. These are all great things to strive for. But if all we see the Scriptures, uh, as, as scriptures being there for is for, to cause us to strive, we'll burn out. I've been a pastor now of uh, three churches, and every church that I have pastored as a senior pastor, where I was just the sole pastor, had this very common strand. The pews would be filled eventually with people burned out from going to churches that had nothing to tell them but what they needed to do more and more and more and more and more. The list never 
ended. And eventually they said, I'm out. Is there any good news for somebody who still struggles? Is there any hope for somebody that still finds themselves not always rejoicing? Well, that leads to the most important thing that I can tell you in light of all these imperatives. Which, by the way, I do want for us. It is the will of God for us. But the fuel for it is going to be found in the very final words of our passage in verses 23 and 24, where Paul says to them, knowing that he's just given them a lot to think about and a lot to process, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, make you holy completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just in case the Thessalonians were filled with any doubt that maybe it wouldn't work out, he adds this, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I'm tempted to be the old-timey preacher that tells you to take out your Bible and underline the word surely 50 times. That is a promise you can bank your whole existence on, no matter what ways you've fallen short of the will of God. Who's doing the verbs? Yes, it is this word that assures us that though we still fall short of the imperatives, that God has promised to keep us, preserve us as blameless up to our final day that spurs us on and gives us hope. Is this word proclaimed over and over again that though our sins are as scarlet in Christ, we are made white as snow, that we rejoice and pray and just might be able to give thanks in all circumstances. As Titus says so brilliantly, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What trains us to renounce the ungodliness and worldly passions? The grace of God. I'll wrap up with a quick little story about famed writer Ray Bradbury and another young writer named B.J. Hollers. B.J. was a teenager when he wrote an essay to Ray, and much to his great surprise, Ray read it. And not only did Ray read it, Ray sent a letter back to B.J. thanking him for it, saying that it was some of the greatest writing that he had ever read in his life. 17-year-old B.J. could not believe what he was reading. And on top of that, at the end of the letter, Ray left his phone number and his address and said, I'd love to hear from you sometime. Why don't you come out and visit me? So B.J. scrimped and saved and did everything he could and eventually bought a plane ticket to where he was in Indiana, all the way out to L.A., where Ray Bradbury lived. And after getting up the courage in the pouring rain outside, he knocked on Bradbury's door and immediately was let into his home for hours. Embraced 
hugged. Shown all of Bradbury's personal library. Bradbury encouraged him and encouraged him to keep on going with his writing. This developed a friendship that went for nearly a decade or over a decade before Bradbury eventually died himself. But what struck me, what struck me in this story was Fowler's depiction of that first time he left Bradbury's house and the impact it made on him. This is what he says. He kissed my cheek. He called me his son. And he told told me to live my life with zest and gusto. I waved goodbye, stepped outside, tilted tilted my head toward the rain, and tried. Now, do you, do you see, do you see, did you catch that? It was the proclamation. It was the embrace. It was the acceptance of Bradbury. And even the proclamation that this young man was as a son to him. That changed his whole perspective. To now wanting to go out into the world and say, I'm going to try to live with zest and gusto because my hero has called me his own. God speaks to you the same way. He declares you to be his son and daughter, promising that he will be faithful to you no matter what. Let that be what motivates you as you walk back out into the new normal of peace, joy, and thankfulness. Let's pray. Father, in and of ourselves, apart from you, we can do nothing. Your word's abundantly clear about that. So grow in us deeper dependence. By the power of your Holy Spirit, make this body, Hillside Church, a church that lives at peace with one another, forgives one another, rejoices and gives thanks and prays together. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord who taught us to pray with one voice. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.